out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be a little bit more off-road because I spoke to one-time member of the theatrical theatre company all the way from the West Coast, San Francisco, the Coquettes. This is uh, one of the original members called Rumi Missable, who I spoke to, to find out more about life, love and poetry. Also goes by the name occasionally of James Bartlett. But um, yes, he's had a very eventful life, so it's a very long interview. So um, as I said, he was a member of the Coquettes and then various theatre companies before and after that and lots of other creative moments. So um, I won't sort of try and build him up because frankly it's a bit boring. So we're just going to get down to the interview. After several minutes of casual chat that uh, you do in the world that is showbiz, which gets edited out obviously, we got down to that roughly um, subject of the early years and the beginning of his time with the Coquettes and much, much more. Anyway, Rumi, it's over to you. We were, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've talked about the Coquettes till, uh, if you can imagine, till the cows come home and I've kind of like, I'm like the lone wolf of the, the group and I've kind of always danced to my own drummer. Even back then, I just recently boycotted the 50th reunion. Uh, it was across the bay. I live in Oakland, California, which is across the bay from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, last year, or in 2020, they had a 50th reunion. And I particularly chose not to go for a number of reasons, uh, a personal reason. And... Um, I'm always, I'm always, I did not go on the ill-fated tour that, or hibiscus that they went to New York back in the 71. Uh, people think all the Cockettes were part of that tour. No, hibiscus and I boycotted that tour. He was actually booted out from the, the troupe by then, and neither one of us went. And he went on to move to New York to work with the Angels of Light with his family. And then I went on to join him and had my own, had my own career in New York and the in the early 70s. Yes. But I've, been back, yeah, but I've been back in the Bay Area now all these years, but I up until I got chronic COPD, emphysema, and cancer, I wasn't, and COVID, I wasn't able to uh, tour New York. I've been touring New York every April and every October for years and years since, uh, God, since Kenny Kenny gave me my start back in 2008. Blimey. Uh, and, yeah, and now I, I because I'm, just about, I'm just about, well, I'm homebound, basically. I'm on oxygen 24-7, and it's difficult for me to travel. Yes. It's difficult for me to get from space to space in my own, my own house. But I have help. I have good insurance. Uh, I have two very nice attendants and very good doctors and all that. But it's difficult for me just today to get around the get around the, the house and around the property yes. to take care of myself. Yeah. Well, I would imagine. But, but sort of just going back, I mean, what was your yeah. kind of, you know, the early formative, you know, your childhood years like? What was what was that like for you? Okay, I'll, I can go in a bit, a bit about that. I was born in Hollywood, California, and I was raised in... Um, my parents were kind of in on the verge of show business, but they never quite got their act together. My dad played a steel guitar on its side and he would jam occasionally he would jam with uh, the uh, country and western uh, uh, 
uh, star, Tex Ritter, just privately, never really performed publicly. And my mother cut a demo, a demonstration record at um, Capitol Records called Cement Mixer Putty Putty that Liberace had a, a hit with. She never, she never really. So she gave up her career to raise our four, uh, her four children. I was her only son, and uh, and uh, and that we were raised in the San Fernando Valley, which is just over the over the hill from Hollywood, mm. and all the stars uh, lived there. All the stars lived there. So of course their ch- their children went there, and a lot of uh, I grew up and majored in drama. Uh, at in San Fernando Valley, and went to a, a a six year high school that was junior high, senior high combined. So it was a lot of people, and everybody was either somebody in my high school or somebody's child. It was a bit ridiculous, but um, uh, I grew up with people like um, Cindy Williams from the television show sitcom Laverne and Shirley, right. and or and Lynn Stewart who became Missy Vaughn on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and then the Academy Award winning actress Sally Field. We were all friends back then. We were just kids. We weren't famous or nothing like that. So this was just common for me to, to have these people in my life. That's how, that's how it was for all of us. Then when I was 16 years old, my family decided they were going to move to Idaho, if you can imagine, a, even imagine what that must be like, to a small town called Lewiston, Idaho. So they did, and I hadn't even finished high school, and I said, well, what about my career? Because I was majoring in drama. I was in two early Walt Disney films right. uh, as a child actor. And I thought, oh, no, uh, I'm not going to Idaho. And my mother said, oh, there's a little theater group in Lewiston, son. I saw that little theater group on a visit. And the most progressive thing they did was a, a vaudeville show called Little Mary's Sunshine from the early 1900s. And I'd ask them, I'd ask the director, have you ever heard of Tennessee Williams or uh, uh, Edward Albee or uh, Eugene O'Neill? And he said, who? Who? Who are these? He didn't even know who these people were. And he was a repertory drama, you know, a director. He didn't even know who they were in Idaho. So, of course, I never moved there. And uh, I never went back after two visits when I was 19. And then for the next 52 years, I did not see my family again until 2018. Uh, my, I had three younger sisters. I had no idea where they were. I wanted some closure what happened to my mother. A friend who was into genealogy, a contact called Tahara, was into genealogy, helped me find my mother. And by the time we found her, she had passed away and married over and over and over again. Her name kept changing. My name, I took on the name Rumi Misabu as my stage name, and I never changed it legally and never used my real name, James Bartlett. So I couldn't find them, and they couldn't find me because they had no idea of my career. Uh, they I had no idea to get a hold of them. Once I got closure that my mother had died, my friends would say, don't you, want to, don't you want to find your sisters now, your three younger sisters? No, no, what am I going to tell them? I'm gay. No, no, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, forget it. I had no desire to. And then in 2018, my middle sister... Um, in 2018, I learned that my older sister, three years younger than me, Linda, had passed away. And then I, that same year, I learned that Mary, my next sister, who never gave up looking for me, she wrote to Sally Field, never got an answer, never gave up looking for her brother uh, in 2018, 
her her two children found me in drag on Facebook. Right. Jesus crazy. Mary meant Mary messaged me on Facebook. I think you're my brother. I didn't know who in the heck she was because of her last name. I deleted her. I didn't have her friend request. Then she messaged me again and said, I think you're my brother. I looked at her page and there were all these childhood pictures of me that I'd never had. I didn't have one photo of me in existence since the hippie days when I moved to San Francisco. So uh, we have reunited now, my sister Mary and my sister my sister Debbie and their families and their husbands. And they visited me about nine times already in the last three years. Nice. So just to, just to, just to ask you one question there. You, you said sure. you didn't change your name, which is, yeah. you know, but they, and, but they still couldn't find you kind of on social media. No, I changed my name. They didn't know I was Rumi Missable. No one knew because I didn't change it legally. I just became Rumi. I became off the grid, David, right. for all those years until I was off the grid from the day I moved up here. I was living in, in the Hollywood Hills with a, uh, the actress Cindy Williams back then, and uh, I had a, kind of like a nervous breakdown. I was probably 18 or 19. I went to see a movie down on Hollywood Boulevard called She Freak, which changed my life. Uh, the premise was uh, this waitress in Texas has this, this slinging burgers and this, and this juke joint and uh, uh, circus promoters coming through the town to set up the circus. He takes a fancy to her, and um, I believe I was on acid, LSD, when I saw this movie. So uh, by myself in Hollywood, I couldn't hold a job because I was taking so much, so many psychedelics at that point. Yeah. So, uh, so this waitress, he picks her up, says, girl, you want a, a job in the circus? Oh, sure. So she quits her job as a waitress and goes with him in the car to promote the circus that's coming to town. Next thing I know, she's kind of like a janitor in the circus, picking up the cotton candy wrappers and just a menial little stupid job. But the, uh, the owner's son and the lion tamer both take a, a fancy to her and both fall in love with her, then have a duel and kill each other over her. So <laughs> then, then the circus owner, the circus owner, the old lech, he's leching after, lusting after her and on, he decides to marry her, proposes to her. She takes, she, uh, she marries him. And on their wedding night, he dies on top of her. So she inherits the whole circus, and she hates the freaks. They have a sideshow of freaks. She hates the freaks. So first thing she does as the owner of the new circus, you know, she was just a waitress before dessert, is I'm getting rid of the freaks. We're going to, you know, we're going to revitalize the circus. And first thing I'm going to do is get rid of the freaks. So because that's their livelihood, they cut off both of her hands, both of her legs, throw them in a pit of snakes, and she becomes a star attraction. Oh, this is a happy ending. It's just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so when I saw that, I, oh my God, I went back to my flat with Cindy. I left her a four or five page, uh, five word note saying, I can't take it anymore. I got on the Greyhound bus and I came to Berkeley and joined the hippies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So was that, was that the sort of during the summer of love, 67, or was that a bit before then? It was just at the end of the summer of love. At the tail end, by the time I got to Hate Street, because I lived in Berkeley for the first year and a half in uh, 60, late 67, 69, uh, the Summer of Love was over by 67. And Hate Street was kind of dangerous by then because uh, uh, the uh, Hells Angels came up and bad drugs entered instead of speed. I mean, instead of LSD, 
the drug of choice became a methamphetamine and it just became really a mess up there. So uh, uh, this was all before the caucus. Now, my music tastes, uh, there's an English author, you probably know the book uh, uh, about how music turned gay. I was in that book, uh, uh, I forget the name, it's on my bookshelf, I just can't see it right now. Uh, it's published about eight years ago. Do you know what I mean? He did a book on Bowie too. Um, what's his? It's called Behind, Behind the Walls or something, Silence. You know that book? No, behind the. I know there's. I got a book called David Bowie Turned Me Gay, and there was another one that no, came. This is, a, this is a book called Behind Behind the Walls of Science, How the Music Turned Gay, and uh, in that book we talk about my early experiences uh, with close encounters with rock stars. Just because I, I guess I was in the right place at the right time. Um, we uh, the Cockettes attracted a lot of the rock stars to our shows. Janis Joplin came to our show and. Uh, she told her date, I wouldn't like to follow them, to be the act that followed them. You know, so the, uh, I, if they were the, she, if they were the open, I'd hate to follow them as an opening act. And then other people would show up, like Johnny Winter would come by. Uh, the, once there was a press conference and they were about to do a show with uh, Captain Beefheart and the, and the Cockettes until he realized that the Cockettes were not a band. They were a, a tribe of transvestites and he can't, Beefheart canceled the show. So, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, most of the rock stars were were uh, hetero, and a lot of them were homophobic, which I found in the groupie scene. The, the I was part of this male groupie scene that mostly existed in San Francisco and in L.A., but not in New York. And a lot of our, a lot of the coquettes were actually male groupies before we became coquettes. Yes, it's it's yeah. it's, it's a, I guess a progression. So actually, just what was the book called? Beyond the what was that again? Beyond the Beyond the Walls of Silence, I believe. It's an English book. It's an English author, and in that book, I tell the story. How I can tell you a little bit about it. How um, uh, we went to see, the coquettes as a group went to see uh, um, Alice Cooper. And his opening act, Iggy Pop. Right. So we went to the Fillmore Auditorium to see them. And we were sitting really right on the floor, right off the front stage, right up front, a whole bunch of us. And Scrumpy and I were with a, a girl who was a minor. She was underage, a beautiful young woman called Tina. And um, when Iggy played, um, it seemed like he was playing the whole audience, this whole set to us, or at least to me, because I was, of course, I was higher, higher than a kite, but uh, it seemed like he was just playing to us. And then after the show, as Alice came on, next thing I know, um, Iggy is sitting right next to us. He came down into the, sat right next to us on the floor after his set. And obviously, we, we got wind that he really wanted Tina, the girl. So he asked me and Scrumbly, who were kind of the, uh, Scrumbly was kind of the dad of the group, uh, and he was the only one to keep it together on psychedelics. He asked Grumbly if, um, if it was okay if, if he took Tina back to his hotel, the Miyako Hotel in Japan. We said, absolutely not, but you can come home with us. So we brought him home, uh, and we became fast friends after that. Next thing I know, five, four or five years later, I turned out to be kind of Iggy's uh, uh, chaperone and even kind of a, a nurse when he was an absolute mess just before Bowie found him. Right. Just before Bowie found him. He was living in West Hollywood. I was going back and forth from L.A., uh, from San Francisco to West Hollywood, and hanging out with him. We were kind of keeping all the uh, the the pests away from his apartment because 
girls would show up all the time. He, Electra had dropped him as a record company. He was doing bad drugs. Iggy would hustle you for anything. If you were, didn't even know you when you came into the room, he would hustle you for a spare change, coins, cash, uh, uppers, downers, psych, uh, psychedelics, anything he could get. He was desperate. And he would just, and we were trying to keep all the undesirable people out of there, my friend and my friend Bruce and I. And it didn't quite work because Iggy would let them in anyway. And he was still living the life of a rock star, getting young girls from Beverly Hills to pay for his hotels, taking them all over the country, gutting and trashing the hotel room as he'd go and living the life of a rock star. But he didn't have a record at the time. Then finally, David Bowie literally found Jimmy uh, Iggy in the gutter, in the gutter on Sunset Boulevard and said, you know what? You're coming with me and we're going to Berlin. And the, the plan was that they would go to Berlin and kid heroin. Well, that didn't happen either. But I'll tell you this. Two of the best things that ever happened to Jimmy Diggy was merging with David Bowie. Yes. And the two albums that he made with Bowie are the best, are really the best. They are, they are quite extraordinary. And going back to yeah. the 60s, I mean, was the kind of, you know, was music incredibly important to you during that sort of... Yes, it was. Well, first of all, in L.A., uh, in L.A., as a, uh, a young teenager, for instance, I was, I was a teenager, and I'm 74 now. So uh, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, I collected singles, not so much vinyl albums, but singles, because there was a fabulous store on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles called um, Wallach's Music City, and they had listening booths. So you could bring an LP or a single in there and play it before you bought it in these listening booths or not buy it. Yes. It was your choice. They didn't, they didn't pressure you to even buy it. So I, I bought a lot of singles, a, a lot of uh, uh, early singles and uh, early rock, a lot of that stuff, uh, a single collection. And then toward my college years in L.A., yeah, when I was 18, 19, before migrating up here, I got into jazz, and my whole, whole world was into jazz and jazz artists. Then, no sooner did I come up here, the jazz, there wasn't much jazz to see in San Francisco. So I got into early folk rock with people like um, uh, Judy Collins and Judy Hensky and uh, uh, people like that, uh, uh, Tim Buckley, uh, people like that got into super folk rock. And then eventually by 69, 70 into psychedelia and to rare, rare psychedelia. I like people like that. The original Pink Floyd and um, uh, uh, Terry Reid. Uh, people like that. Uh, uh, so my music started, my music preferences kept changing and yes. still do to this day. And I, the Cockettes were all about Broadway show tunes. And uh, I wanted to mention that uh, Cockettes, you know, the early Cockettes, it was like Broadway show tunes. I biscuits would come up with a theme uh, like Gone with the Showboat to Oklahoma and have songs from all of those, from Gone with the Wind, from Showboat, from Oklahoma. And it was just a kind of a free for all no real script. But then um, Sylvester and I, Sylvester joined the group later. I was an original Cockette. He wasn't, uh, but he came into the group about four months later and kind of took over. Uh, I remember we were about to do a Moroccan opera with Hibiscus and even had some funding going on with uh, the director, Francis Ford Coppola, who made The Godfather, was interested in backing it. But then someone went to LA, found Sylvester, brought him back up to San Francisco to join the Cockettes and no more Moroccan opera. 
Now we're doing an all-gospel show, because that's what he was into, the music. So uh, the, music, the music kept changing for me. But Sylvester and I were the only two of the Cockettes, scrumly to some extent, who actually used rock in the shows. I had two, I call them garage bands, you know that term? Yes. Garage. They weren't very good, and they would back me up live uh, doing impersonations of Tina Turner, who I got to work with as a stylist in 1970 and 71, and Mick Jagger. So I would do, in the Cockettes, I would do a, I would come out as Mick Jagger doing a Tina Turner song, Shake a Tail Feather, live, not lip sync, but live with a real band. And my first band was so bad, they couldn't get a gig <laughs> without, without me on their own. And they were called Pete and the Slob. I don't know, Pete was a lead guitar player. I don't know who the Slob was. But uh, anyway, I would, uh, they would just back me up doing uh, Rolling Stone songs or Tina Turner songs in the, in the live shows in the contest. As by that time, I was kind of like special appearance by uh, Rumi and or Sylvester. We were kind of distancing ourselves from the show or opening the show or closing the show. So uh, my second group was called the Finchley Boys, another garage band from Champaign, Illinois. And Sylvester and I both used them as well before he became, you know, any before he became famous or any of his other groups, a hot band or nothing. But uh, we were the only two in the cockpit to utilize rock. Everyone else was just doing a Broadway show tune with a company uh, accompanied by a piano played by Scrumbly or uh, Peter Minton, our, our society piano player. Yes. But um, we were the two that used rock. So I like to say it was my feeble attempt at rock. It wasn't successful, but um, every once in a while I get a little a little press out of it. I remember a, a French-Canadian magazine called Rock and Folk uh, came out, and uh, they cited me in it for, for succeeding with my impersonation in Mick, as Mick and Tina. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Um, did you do, and just kind of interesting, you know, with the 60s, we just sort of, 67 was the summer of love and there was the, was it the, the, the gathering of the tribes on you know, San yeah. Francisco by Golden yeah. Gate, that was January. And then, you know, in the same year, around June, July, there was in London, the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally. Yeah. So there was a sort of a real wave of kind of optimism and enthusiasm. And then a few yeah. years later, things, as you kind of mentioned a bit earlier, start to get a bit yeah. um, sour, really. And then you had the Charles Manson kind of like influence. Oh, and, yeah. and then yeah. you had, you know, Woodstock, was kind of a success, but then you had Altamont, which didn't seem Altamont, so good. Yeah, and then, and then there was the sort of death of you know Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis yeah. Joplin, and before yeah, yeah. that, you just had Brian, Brian Jones. Did it feel yeah. like you know with that turn in of the decade that that things were a little bit the party had gone a bit sour, or were you still full of? Sure had, yes, yeah, sure. I again, I, I'm probably one of the only contests uh, who did not attend Altamont. I actually went to a psychic that day in San Francisco, but I noticed that day, all the young people in San Francisco were gone because Altamont is about, I don't know, 8, 60, 80 miles north of here uh, from the Bay Area. So all the young people cleared out that day, but I chose not to go because I was going to a, a psychic who would, he, she would use, write her a question and fold it over so she couldn't see it. And she'd identify you in the room without, without kind of like Johnny Carson and Karnak, she'd identify you and but without without embarrassing you, without identifying you to everyone else, and answer your question 
without even looking at the question. She was really something. So I went to her uh, instead of Altamont. But yes, uh, Altamont was a complete debacle. Uh, a lot of my friends were there. Uh, I knew a couple of the airplane who were on stage and had to be, uh, you know, they were they were beat up by the Hells Angels and had to be helicoptered out of that place. It was a, just terrible. Fayette mm. was at Altamont. I see, I've seen photographs of Fayette in Mick Jagger's trailer. Pam, on the other hand, is an absolute sweetheart, Pam. You know, she was a, uh, the lover of DVD, D.D. Ramon. Pam. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, so during that period, when do you, because you mentioned sort of being a male groupie with Cindy. Yeah. I mean, what, what you know, because, you know, we've sort of read the book by Pamela DeBars on groupiedom. So is it oh, yeah. just, yeah. That, what, what's the kind of general, you know, for those, including myself, you know, think, oh, what, because you said that male, the male rock star was very heterosexual. heterosexual. Yes, most uh, of them were. So uh, the male, the, uh, the, the male groupies didn't get much action like Pamela did or Harlow. Harlow was a, another coquette and angel of light who was the assistant of a Cynthia Plastercaster. Harlow was a fluffer. She would fluff, uh, give the boys, give the rock stars uh, a blowjob before Cynthia made the plaster cast. So, uh, but what I'm saying is that, of course, uh, the rock stars, most all of them preferred uh, women. They just, that was it. So, but... Uh, we would try to dress up like them, emulate them. Uh, that's what kind of, the, you know, put on feather bows and the males would put on makeup and everything and try to get backstage and try to get laid. But it really never really happened. Uh, it never really happened. Uh, uh, but like I said, I, I, I would go back, I would try to go backstage and just to get close to people like Sid Barrett or uh, um, Terry Reed or a few others. I'm, I can't, I can't remember right now, but like I said, we never really, the, ma- the male groupies never really scored because they preferred, they were for, for the women. And frankly, I believe they were mostly homophobic. Most of the, some of the hippies were, most of the hippies were homophobic. The women were considered, I mean, the gays were tolerated and the women in the hippie generation were considered just uh, inferior and uh, there to clean up after the men in the hippie, hippie yes. rebellion. That's really what I believe. They were yes. kind of misogynist, and I really believe that they were kind of sexist. The whole hippie movement was. It yes, wasn't really I think I think you're absolutely friendly. right. I, th- I think most friendly. most people have sort of mentioned that it was it was far yeah. from you know an enjoyable experience for most women because yeah, yeah. there was a lot of pressure for a lot of women to sort of go along with what the mm-hmm. men wanted because otherwise they would then be called straight or right. you know yeah. conformist, and then there was the sort of a yeah. lot of emotional sort of. Yeah, mm-hmm. pressure. I suppose that's the word, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. to to yeah. just basically have sex. So that's it, really. Mm-hmm. But Lynn, how did you get, then become part of the the coquettes? Did you, you know, because before then you'd had the 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 theatre, which was was it the Living Theatre by uh, was it John? Oh, oh, you know that you know that I was in the Living Theatre. No, I didn't know that. This is with. Oh, you just said that. Though. Yes, I was in the Living Theatre. I was in a show with called Paradise Now and with Julian Beck and Judith Molina here in Berkeley and in San Francisco. It was a show, basically, this is pretty cockatoo, this is 69. And um, the cockatoo, of course, was New Year's 70. So uh, this was just before the cockatoo. And the Living Theater realized this particular show, they did. They came to San Francisco from Brazil to do two shows. One was called Frankenstein, where they assembled themselves 
members of the, of the group assemble themselves into a, a Frankenstein with their bodies. And they were like, you know, 20 feet tall. Uh, and they were just each member was part of the body. But the other show they did called Paradise Now was so loose that anyone could be in it because the living theater would come right in the audience, recruit people and go right, uh, talk right up to their face and recruit people from the audience. So I was part of that show. And at the San Francisco event, you could probably Google it and read about it. Uh, I actually got to perform with Jim Morrison, who came to the event that night. And he also was part of that performance for the Living Theater at North Auditorium in San Francisco that night. He actually gave the, gave the group $500 because they were stranded back in San Francisco after being in jail in Brazil to get back to New York where they were based. I think he gave them $500 or maybe even more with the poet Michael McClure. Right. But, uh, so uh, that was kind of cool. But uh, I just found footage of that just recently because uh, I've talked about that working with a living theater prior to the podcast. And another group that I was in, oh, they wouldn't allow me to be in, in Berkeley called the Floating Lotus Magic Opera Company. And it was kind of a, kind of like a spiritual podcast based with shamans and gods and people like that. And uh, uh, the director, for some reason, did not like me, but um, I was allowed to meditate with the group and have meals with the group, but I was not allowed to perform with them, although I'm sleeping without the cast. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, one, of the, one of the ladies who played the goddess Kali, the goddess Kali in the group, was a beautiful lady, a couple years older than me, called uh, Suzanne Verdahl. And she became, uh, she was the inspiration for the uh, Leonard Cohen song. Hello? Yeah. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the phone. The phone was, the phone does that. It rings like someone's calling. It says unknown. Ooh. Then it puts your number on it, then rings and rings, and then the screen goes dead. Ooh. It happens with everybody. I don't know why. But anyway, Suzanne became a, the song that Judy Collins uh, sings about Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. Uh, she became Suzanne Verdahl. And here you go again. It's doing it again. Strange. New voicemail. Your number keeps going to voicemail. But anyway, so, uh, <clears throat> um, so I was not allowed to be part of the floating Lotus and, uh, but the living theater let me in. And um, I also did, after coming to Berkeley from L.A., I read, I auditioned for a show called Sexus, Plexus, and Butch. And I got the lead as Butch. And we toured San Francisco and Berkeley with that for a while. Nice. Uh, got to play really cool little venues. I learned later that wonderful people had played in, jazz musicians, Big Mama Thornton, and all these great musicians that prior previously played in these clubs I didn't even know about until I researched where I had worked. And what was so did, right now, I was going yeah. to say, did you meet John um, Ficar? Is it Ficaro? No, no, no. It's there, after my time. I, I moved to New York in seventy one, and excuse me, seventy two, yeah. three, and four when I came back to California. And uh, by that time, Ficaro was over, and Charles Ludlam, who was part of Ficaro, had split from Ficaro and started his own group the theater of ridiculous. And of course I met Charles and worked with them and hung out with them all the time. His leading man was my best friend, uh, Bill there 
who was also the best friend of a David Johansson from the New York Dolls. Right. God, it's, it's, so I, I see David all the time. I had out at Memphis, Kansas City, and uh, hang out in the back room. But you really had to know somebody. It was almost like Studio 54 back then. It wasn't so much uh, Debbie Harry was the, the waitress back then. You'd, you had to know somebody to get in the back room. There was no Steve Rebell like at Maxis. I mean, at, at, at Studio 54, letting people in or not. You just had to go in with somebody who was the doorman knew. So it was uh, David Johansson, uh, Wayne County, and Danny Fields that always smuggled me into the back room. So uh, it was yeah. really a cool place to be. Max's Kansas City in the back room because you never know what you were going to see back there. You never know. Yes. We were sitting in a booth one night. We were sitting in a booth one night and four or five, four guys were carrying Johnny Winter out of the back room because he had, he had OD'd and they were carrying him out of the back room. You never know what you're going to see. <laughs> it was crazy, crazy madness back there. Yes. It was quite... So then, so were you right at the beginning of the Coquettes forming? Yeah. Was this... Yeah. So, yeah, so how did that kind of moment happen? Well, we all kind of met in different places. I've, I've, I cannot come up with an exact place where any of us really met. Hibiscus would recruit people originally uh, before it got really serious and they booted him out. He would recruit people. Where he found me could have been a number of places. It could have been Golden Gate Park. It could have been a bus. It could have been uh, a place called... Uh, the Capri Bar in North Beach, which was the gay, uh, the, where the Palisader was, where we performed. It was the gay mecca back then, before Polk Street. It was a, so uh, the Capri Bar was a, a wonderful gay bar where a lot of us met. Or it could have been the Palace Theater that we would all attend <clears throat> prior to uh, the Coquette shows because uh, Stephen Arnold had started the Nocturnal Dream Show there. It was a Chinese, Chinese theater that would show... Chinese movies, and then uh, every couple of months, the uh, Peking Opera would come and perform live at the palace. And then at midnight, the whole thing would change, and Stephen Arnold and Sebastian would show uh, wonderful art films, uh, Jack Smith films, and Kenneth, Kenneth Anger, and the work of all these people uh, uh, we'd never saw before. Uh, so uh, that was our first exposure, and it was everything went on at the Palace Theater up on the balcony. You could smoke reefer, you could have sex, you could just just go crazy there. There was no real restriction. We never felt, even back then, that we were threats. We lived in our own bubble and existence, so we never worried about being gay bashed, and we weren't. We weren't. No one really bothered us. We were living in our own universe, and just because we were so far out, we were practically illegal, that no one really bothered us. So I can't say where we all met, but I like to say that we were a bunch of freaks that came together like magnets, because that's the, that's the easiest way to describe how we all met. We all came from different corners of the country, and, uh, but where we all met is debatable. Yes. Uh, everyone has a different version of where so-and-so met, who discovered Ibis, who discovered Sylvester. There's so, what the first show was, there's all these different, all these different versions, of course. Uh, and there still is history kind of uh, doesn't history just has a funny way of um, of, of, of uh, you know, how they how they ended up talking about us. Uh, yes, I, I know. It's, it's, I, it, I read my own obituary recently. I just read my own obituary on my on Google. 
Yes, that's a bit much, isn't it? You don't need that. That's, too, that's a bit too shocking. But did um, yes, what was what was Hibiscus like as a character? I mean, when you first met him and, and worked with oh, him. Oh, absolutely charismatic. He, he was my lover upon upon meeting him briefly, but that's what he was living with us in uh, what is now called Japantown. But back then it was called the Western Edition, and it was just basically some old Victorian flats that were really really low rent in the black section of San Francisco and they uprooted them all and built Japantown. They tore down all the houses. But he lived there uh, with the uh, uh, commune cauliflower. You've heard of them. Yes. And with Irving Rosenthal. He lived there with Irving Rosenthal when I first met him. So it was, a, it was, and he brought me home one night and we had a relationship and next thing I know it's New Year's Eve and uh, we've already, we've secured the Palace Theater to go on stage and our first show was uh, putting on a uh, uh, Jumping Jack Flash by the Stones on an old phonograph on the stage and just tearing our clothes off. And a lot of people think we were just a drag. A lot of people think who don't know us that we were just a collective or a drag, a drag group of guys. Not too many people, unless they've done their homework, know that we're there were women in the group, straight guys, and even an infant, even a baby. So people don't really know that, uh, or or they don't really know about the nudity aspect of us. The nudity was just as prevalent as the, the drag and the costumes. So that was our first show. We just cranked up the phonograph, just jumping that flash, tore our clothes off, brought the house down, and did it again, the same, the same song. That was our first show that night. But Hibiscus was the charismatic force about it. And he would just come up with a different theme every month, and we'd go back. Okay, now we're going to do an all-Southern show called, or an all-tropical show called Tropical Heat Wave Hot Voodoo with songs from South Pacific. All Hibiscus cared about is if he had the most songs and he had the biggest headdress. And there was a lot of rivalry of the group, a lot of rivalry. Uh, I did not get along with Sylvester, but I'm about to be the Coquette spokesman on a new documentary about Sylvester because uh, I was the, I'm the chosen one to, to actually talk about. I'm not going to trash him or anything like that. He was an amazing talent, but I believe... Uh, I'm going to quote him that I believe he, the Cartets were just a stepping stone for him, for Sylvester. He mm-hmm. would like to say, he likes to say that uh, when you walk down the walk down the road and you see uh, somebody sitting in a mud puddle and they invite you to jump in and you do, that's the Cartets. And that was his attitude. That was his kind of his, kind of he was really, the group was just like a stepping stone for him. Yes. Uh, we didn't really get a lot I really didn't get along with a couple of uh, one of the original Cockettes, Goldie Glitters, although she was a groupie too. But we later became dear friends in the mid-70s once the group was over. And I went down to visit her in her beach house in Venice. And she introduced me to Robert Opal, the streaker at the Oscars. And I ended up making a fabulous documentary with his nephew uh, called Uncle Bob about the, the streaker at the Academy Awards who ran by David Niven as he was introducing Elizabeth Taylor on live TV on the Academy Awards. <laughs> so I made a fabulous uh, documentary called Uncle Bob, which you can see too. Uh, I think it's on Amazon. Uh, it's really one of the best things I've done. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. How long did you, how long were you in the Cockettes for during this? Because it was oh, very... the first year only. The Cockettes lasted uh, two, uh, two, year, two years and a half. New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's Eve, 1970s, uh, and were over by July 1972. I quit 
after November 1970, the first year when I played Madame Jinsling in our first scripted show, Pearls Over Shanghai, based on the uh, von Stroheim, I'm excuse me, the von Sternberg film, um, Shanghai Gesture. Yes. And it was our first original, first original script, and I, I played Madame Jinsling. Then I quit because I saw what, where the group was heading. They were starting to talk about going to New York, and they really thought they were in a Broadway show. And I knew it wasn't going to translate well in New York. I just knew it. I, had, I saw the writing on the wall. I decided not to go. Hibiscus was booted out by then. And, of course, they, they, flop, you know, they, they had a hard time on opening night, but they managed to stay and do the next two weeks of their shows, two small audiences in this gigantic abandoned theater that they resurrected for the tour. But uh, uh, I just I just knew it wasn't going to translate well, just like the Ridiculous Theater Company, who came here and played in the, the cavernous Zellerbeck Auditorium here, didn't translate well here. Even though we were doing kind of the same type of theater, uh, it just was different. The New York queens were very nihilistic, while the us San Francisco queens were, you know, acid freaks and all happy. So there was a big, big difference between us. And um, so um, so I quit in November of 1970. Then uh, they were about to do their first year anniversary under new management and got rid of our manager, Sebastian. So I they brought me back from the dead, I like to say, to do the New Year's show a year later, 71, uh, 1971, New Year's at another theater, to at Bimbo Supper Club, down the street from the palace. And they kind of tricked me. A new manager kind of tricked me uh, for that show. I agreed to be in it, but I was, because of the drug I was on at the time, which was Coke, uh, I was very arrogant. My nose was in the air. I didn't want to have anything to do with any of the cockettes except for Scrumbly and um, Hibiscus. So I said, when I'm on stage... All the other cockettes have to be off stage, and I'm going to perform one number with Scrumbly. It was kind of a greatest hits type of show, the songs we had already done before. So I did one song, one number on New Year's with Scrumbly called from After the Ball from Showboat, and then one number with Hibiscus, Happy Talk from South Pacific. Mm. Then I was told that I could turn the show into a party as Tina Turner with my full band. I just, you know, I had a full band. I didn't lip sync with, a, you know, four musicians, tr- even horns, the uh, iCats, the announcer playing Ike, uh, and I could turn it into a party at the end. The show was so successful, the first show, it was sold out, uh, the first show, that it was supposed to be just one show. The manager came backstage as I was getting ready to do my Tina Turner act, because I'd been working with her, at styling her at Basin Street West, and um, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm getting ready as Tina Turner. He said, no, get back into the first drag. We're doing a second show. We've got a whole crowd outside the club who didn't, couldn't get in for the first show, including Warhol and Small Faces. Ron, and I said, what the hell? Uh, they couldn't get in the first show. So I said, you didn't know. This is the first I've heard of it. I, you, I was going down. So I said, Fuck that. I'm not going to, I'm not doing it. I am not getting, going to be on the show. Strike my numbers from the first show. I'll wait because this was a deal. I was going to turn, turn this into a party with my, with my band at the end. And there were like you know, 13 people involved 
in my band. Mm. And uh, so I waited for them to do the whole second show. I refused to do my two numbers. It came, finally it ended and the lights came up and they were just introducing me, ladies and gentlemen, the hardest working girl in show business today. Na, 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 na. My band starts playing and all of a sudden the entire theater went dark. Oh, what's going on? Everything, lights, sound, nothing. There was an ordinance in North Beach that you couldn't have live entertainment after 2 a.m. So just as I was being introduced, the, the lights and sound went off. I was devastated. Mm. I went home in tears, and I refused to even come back or come back to the group until April of 71 when they offered me the role of Brenda Breakfast in another big scripted show called Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma. <clears throat> I came back as the original Brenda Breakfast. Then I did the original production of that. Then I quit. Then they went to New York by the end of the year. Right. Uh, with, with Shanghai and with Tinsel Tarts. And they opened up with the wrong show. They opened up with Tinsel Tarts and bought Dusty Brent and Sweet Pam, nine months pregnant, uh, topless on stage. And the uh, uh, New York audience was like, what? Oh, my God. And people fled. <laughs> Angela Lansbury uh, got led the charge to the exit signs uh, after the first number. And I make fun of them now, but, but it must have been a hoot because everyone was there that night. Uh, John and Yoko and Tony Perkins and everybody. Oh, Angela Lansbury. It was Allen Ginsberg. It was, you, you've seen the documentary. They're all there. Yes. In the wobble. Just too much. So I quit after that. And then years later, they revived our the Thrill Peddlers here in San Francisco revived those two shows with me and Scrumbly and Pam. And uh, I was happy to jump in and reprise my roles all those years later, 38 years later in 2008, nine, 10. And again, in 2014, I revived my, revised my role of uh, Madame Ginsling and Brenda Breakfast and Tinsel Dart. And uh, the Shanghai, I mean, pulls uh, over Shanghai, lasted in San Francisco. We did the revival for 22 months. It lasted, it played 22 months in 2009 and 10. Wow. And I was lucky enough at the time, I was touring New York all the time and doing independent films. So I was lucky to step in and out of my role with an understudy and come back when I came back after doing something else. So that went on to 2009, 10, uh, and then we, 14, we did a, Tinsel tarts, and uh, uh, so, uh, but I was, I had like four or five, six understudies, so I was able to come and go into the role. Mm. And um, then uh, my smoking became an issue because I I was a chronic cigarette smoker and marijuana smoker for fifty years, and around that time, two thousand ten uh, and eleven and twelve, I started to really, really feel it, and then. Uh, I had to, in order for me to quit smoking, I'm smoke-free now for uh, seven years, but uh, I ended up getting lung cancer. And the only way I could finally stop was I tried everything. The only thing that made me quit was uh, um, the triggers, getting rid of all the triggers. And one of the big triggers was the parking lot of the theater, of the Thrill Peddlers, where I had been uh, reviving all the coquette shows because everyone smoked back there. Everyone smoked weed and cigarettes before the show, during the show, after the show. And um, I had to get rid of all my triggers in order to stop smoking. Then when I finally stopped smoking, I got cancer. I got shingles. I got a hernia. I got chronic emphysema. I couldn't believe it. Once I quit, and now I'm dealing with 
still dealing with that to this day. Yes. So uh, uh, now I have severe mobility issues just getting from across the room, just today, just getting into the kitchen and uh, just at a chore. Yes. I can, I can get, I, I use a walker now, but I like to say I, I, I like to take the disc out of my ability. It really hasn't stopped my ability from keeping active, but I do that kind of from home. I just did a, I just did a, uh, a Zoom event called Off the Grid, talking about those years I was off the grid until an intervention when I moved to this house 16 years ago to get my identity back as James Bartlett. I had no identity, nothing. I had no paper trail since I was 19 years old. And, and um, 16 years ago, 17 years ago now, when I moved here, I was persuaded to get help and get my identity back piece by piece. I mean, I had nothing but an expired San Francisco library card under Rumi Missable. Uh, so little by little, I finally got back um, uh, 16 years ago. I finally got back my, uh, I got a, my original social security because I hadn't worked except under the table since I was 19 years old. I got my original uh, birth certificate back. I got welfare and then SSI. Uh, I got a bank account, which I never had a bank account. I worked under the table. And um, I finally got a passport because I was never able to travel again. Back in the day, mm. in the early 70s, you didn't need a passport to go to Canada or Mexico. And I actually lived in Montreal for nine months before I ever got to Manhattan in 72. I lived in, but you didn't need a passport. You just needed a visa. Now you need a passport anywhere. So I never could travel anywhere to Europe. So uh, in, I got my passport back in 2005. And in 2007, I went to, uh, uh, I had my first exhibit of 600 pieces of my memorabilia at uh, State Run Gallery in Oslo, Norway, and then went into London and Amsterdam. And then I went back again on tour to 11 Days in Paris in 2012 with my partner, uh, uh, French dancer, Sebastian, I mean, uh, Francois Chanot. Well, amazing. But then, I mean, just, I mean, when you, you know, just going back, you know, when you left the Coquettes, then what, what sort of, where do you head next? Oh, I mean, what, what's okay. the uh, next part yeah, of I your... Told, yeah, I told a story recently when the, off the grid. So what happened was I, uh, when I left the Coquettes and uh, I went to New York, I had my own little career for a while in New York with the uh, hibiscus and his, the angel, his angel of light there with his family, his mother, brother, sisters. And uh, did a bunch of events. New York was a wonderful experience for me because uh, I just hung out with all these cool people and uh, uh, really experienced some the most fabulous rock parties I'd ever been to uh, on New on New Year's Eve. We had the same we the Angels of Light had the same manage uh, no agent as uh, as Stevie Wonder. So Stevie Wonder came to our show twice in New York, the Angel of Light show. And then he gave a big party uh, afterwards, New Year's Eve, for all of us and all his friends and up at a, a private club. And uh, I got to go there. I, I knew, a, um, I knew in New York, I knew a, um, I knew a cinematographer from here called uh, John Summers. And he was in New York at the time. I started hanging out with him. And we were in the Drake Hotel uh, as he was, he was cinematographer for uh, Zeppelin's um, Song Remains the Same film. Yeah. And the night that... They had done two shows at the Madison Square Garden with one show left. We were all partying with the Zeppelin 
uh, and the Drake Hotel in New York City. And uh, somebody, a roadie, an actual roadie, went down to the hotel safe, said he had permission to go into the safe where the Zeppelin had put two nights of the garden's money uh, in the safe and took off with the money, mm. the roadie. And it made the newspapers and everything. And, and then there were just these fabulous shows there. Another night I did a show, I worked with a performance artist in 73 and 4 called in New York called Martha Manuhin from Buenos Aires. And uh, she would do these happenings, one time only or twice at the most, these happenings. And we did one show called um, Kidnapping, where 40 of us kidnapped 40 people in the audience from the Sculpture Garden at at MoMA at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, blindfolded them and took them to 40 different locations. Mark had a fleet of cabs waiting outside the museum. And each of us took the people we kidnapped to a different location. And I took the fellow I kidnapped to a private party that Sly Stone was giving for Mott the Hoople, who had just played the garden. And Sly Stone was so stone, he passed out in the plate in the platter of meatballs. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he ever lifted his head up the night we were there. The funniest thing, and, and got the party with Mata Hoople. So, I mean, it was just legendary, the New York for me. Yes. So then I came back in 70, uh, 74 and 5 via four months stopover in New Orleans. Now I'm able, now I, I try to stay in the art world by then. 75, 76, but things are kind of drying up, drying up. I became close friends then with uh, the Coquette Pristine Condition. We did a, a bicentennial bisexual calendar and had a big event for that. Uh, it basically, it was me figuring out five people uh, who were born on that day in all walks of life every day and Pristine Condition as the uh, playmate, as the, as the, uh, photo with famous people. She was like the star fucker of the Cockettes, Christine. Mm. So we did that. Then I did another installation with a sculpture at Grace Cathedral. And then finally, a, a friend of mine called Super Joel from Berkeley opened an art gallery and um, in San Francisco. And I became first his housekeeper. And he'd throw big rock parties for, for David Bowie and, and um, Iggy and, and entertaining all these uh, rock stars. And he was uh, he was super into uh, drugs, but not really selling drugs, more like manufacturing them. So uh, I was kind of the housekeeper. You have to clean up after these parties. And then eventually I became the gallery rep. He opened a gallery called Art for Art's Sake there. And I was the, the body in the gallery, basically, because Joel would all be off riding camels in India or something. And I was the one who would have to sit in a gallery. Once the artist would have an opening night, he'd show for a month, and I was the one that have to sit in the gallery for the rest of the month and um, arrange meetings with if someone was interested in buying a piece or something. And he had a lot of rockers that showed in the gallery too, like the Tubes, who are friends of ours. Remember the, remember, you know the Tubes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they were close. They were friends with us. So Michael Cotton from the Tubes had an installation there. And every month it'd be a different artist. Then finally, things just dried up for me. And in order for me to live the lifestyle I wanted, and to live privately, I had to uh, move into a series of, uh, uh, they're called SROs, or they're basically hotels where, the, uh, where you have permanent residency, you don't move, you stay in that hotel, and I always had to have a private bath, and I went from one hotel 
to another for the next, God, long, long time, living alone just to, because of my lifestyle and working as first a, a prep cook, then a caterer, and then a domestic until basically I moved here 16 years ago. I still had two clients left, uh, one in Marin County and one across the bay in San Francisco. But I ended up being a, a housekeeper and domestic and prep cook working in various restaurants just to make a living and all under the table. I would not accept a check. Uh, if they tried I, somehow, if I did have to take a check, I'd get someone to cash it for me because I had no idea. I'd never, I'd never bank account then. So I lived that way all those years until the intervention 17 years ago here when my neighbors, my landlord, my roommate at the time, I don't, I live alone now. And my patron all got together and said, if you're going to stay here, you really need help. You need financial help and you need to get your ID back. So I did. And it was not, didn't happen overnight. We had to go through agency by agency to go open a bank account, to get my original social back, to get my original birth certificate back, to get a passport. I mean, it took two years and I'm so glad I did it. And now I've reunited, I've reunited with my family after 52 years. And that's really, really, I'm really happy I did that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm amazed. They I mean, because oh, they were once they were back in my life, they never judged me. My sisters, they were just so sweet about everything. And uh, I was so scared. One sister told me before the other sister came, "Oh, you're going to have to hide all the gay stuff." That Debbie was very conservative, so I didn't have that much up at the time. There were a couple of nude guys, refrigeration magnets, and something. I told my attendant, Get, "Put them away until Debbie leaves." And of course. She, they didn't even, Debbie didn't even care. And her husband, I showed him, I showed them my documentary ruminations. And uh, after we, after we watched it, the documentary, her husband broke down. He said, you know, uh, you know, I have two sons and one of them's been married to a, a man for 13 years. I said, oh my God. <laughs> I said, queers and I don't, oh my God. <laughs> so they didn't come to judge me. They, we're just happy to have me back in my life. Yes, absolutely. And just going back, because you mentioned the film, Rumi- yeah. Ruminations. Ruminations. Yeah, so have could, you seen it? I haven't, which is bad, isn't it? Is it easily available? Do you have Prime? Do you have Amazon Prime? I do. It's on there. Oh. It was free, but now it's two ninety nine or something because the DVD's out. Yes, I need to. And it's, so, yeah. it's, won five, it's won five awards. It's won lots, hasn't yeah, it? Yes, it's, uh, it was an award-winning film I did with uh, Robert James, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. He's made two films since, and uh, uh, we're still very, very close. He uh, he just found me to be a subject, so over three years we shot this film, Rumination, named after Rumi for Ruminations, because my namesake is the uh, Persian poet, you know, uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, the, the, the 16th century uh, uh, mystic poet. Yes, this is true. But... Uh, it's really something about ruminate, but what you're going to see if you rent uh, the the deal he had with Amazon and with PBS, which is like the educational TV channel here that children watch, they had to edit out 38 minutes of the film of some of the salacious stories, and uh, they blurred out the they did uh, you know the editor of the actual film had to in order to sell it to uh, Amazon. He had to blur out all the uh, the uh, the breasts, the butt cracks, and the penises. 
they're still there, but they're blurred out. There's so, and then he took 38 minutes of some of the stories out. So now the DVD has come out, and it's a full frontal thing. It's the it's the uncensored, uncut version. You could buy the DVD on Amazon, and uh, it includes my 1971 cult hit, Elevator Girls in Bondage. That's a special feature on it. Plus, it has a five or six other, another hour or two of special features on it that didn't make the film. It's like it's quite good. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it follows your life, and it goes through sort of archives, footage, animations, and yeah. interviews. So it really yeah. is just a an autobiographical film about a bit like. Um, yes. How so does now it... I'm really into academia. I do a lot of classes. Yes. I talk to a lot of classes. I, I was doing that in person in New York at NYU and New School. I enjoy doing that, uh, even online. I, I do a lot of Zooms. I do, uh, <clears throat> I do a lot of uh, magazine articles online and stuff like that. And I'm really into academia. So uh, what I'm up to now is, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have over 200 pounds of memorabilia available right now at the uh, New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center and another 50 pounds waiting in storage in Greenwich Village in New York for them to pick it up. But because of COVID, uh, they have yet to pick it up. They promised to in July. And I was hesitant. This is a this is a straight archive at Lincoln Center. That's not really gay, per se. It's an archive for a, for a Broadway producers and shows. And it's, you know, it's, it's more Broadway than anything. But um, I had a luck the good luck to be part of this archive. Uh, and so now I started thinking, uh, because they've been so slow on making, picking up the rest of my stuff that's already in New York, I shipped it to a year ago, July, and it's still sitting in storage waiting for a courier to pick it up. I decided just a few months ago, I was going to do a sister archive, uh, a gay archive, and we're just finishing this up at the end of the month my uh, intern is coming out here from New York City, and uh, we're tweaking and uh, uh, fix, uh, finishing the new collection, and that is slated for the uh, uh, LGBT National Archive at the LGBTQ Community Center in New York City, the 1st of May. So uh, the, the kid is coming out here uh, the 28th, 29th, and 30th this month, working with me and identifying all the photos, and it's a, probably another hundred pounds, costume accessories, wonderful, wonderful things. Yes. Uh, and we're now, I'm donating that all for free to the uh, LGBT National Archive in New York City. It's incredible. Did you, um, I mean, going back, you know, when you decided you were going to find your yourself again, did you say that was about 17 years ago? Yes, when I moved here. I live in Oakland now, and uh, it's a three-unit three house. And we're all artists. My my crazy landlord next door is a, uh, a performance artist, and he goes by Carl with records, and he makes his own lyrics to uh, old vinyl, and he's a painter, fabulous painter. The lady in back of me, Nina, she's a, uh, um, she does uh, shop windows. So we're all really, we're all artists, and her, her whole place is full of mannequins and stuff. So we're really art. And I've kind of, I've really, you know, I've grown to love this place. The only issue I have right now is I'm up 20 stairs, and I can no longer do the stairs uh, because of my mobility issues. So I have a, a portable stair chair lift, and it is a bit of a, only one of my attendants 
knows how to operate it. It's electric. And you charge it up with a battery. And I've only been, I've had the thing for four or five years now, but it scares me to death going down. He has to lift me completely over and harness me in this thing. And I'm completely flat. And it takes my concrete stairs like a uh, tractor, like these <laughs> tractor wheels drop down. So it's a way down and a way back up. But it's very, very frightening, David. It scares me every time. So just going down is the worst part to his car if I have to go anywhere. And I have been in San Francisco since um, November of 2018, right across the bay, when um, uh, Taylor Mack, you know who he is? No. I frequently collaborate with him. He honored me at the Curran Theater. Beautiful, beautiful theater for a queer elder opening night for his show back in 2018, uh, Taylor Mack. And uh, I haven't really been there since 2018 because it's really a stretch for me to just to get down these stairs. It's like, oh, my God, my heart races like off the charts. I can't do anything but breathe. And it, so right now, because of that, I'm on I'm on an anxiety for my anxiety. I'm I'm on a Zoloft, which is a antidepressant. And I'm on um, I take a, a CBD oil to, Every day, THC, CBD oil. I don't smoke weed anymore, but uh, uh, both of those things, the CBD oil, is supposed to calm me. Yes. So, uh, but that's the only way I can get out right now. That's the only drawback with living here. I'm kind of stuck. Uh, there's talk of me possibly moving to senior housing where it would be an elevator, but I would not have the storage space I have. I have fabulous cedar closets all over my house and storage space. I would not have that in senior housing. Only thing I have would be the elevator, and to, you know, come and go. Yes, and so that's I'm tricky. Kind of just doing what I can here, and uh, what, what you know, trying to stay as creative as I can. And but I've had to put my tour on hold now for since 2019. My last show was uh, in New York City at Judson Memorial Church, where I staged these big, um, I call them spectacle pantomime dance attractions, and I work with a lot of non-actors. They don't have lines. I narrate a story, and they move to my narration. And we've done nine of them in New York, and uh, mostly with non-actors, some dancers. I mix it all up. I use a lot of the perpetual, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and mostly non-actors. I have kind of like a little repertory company there. I bring people in from uh, from other places, too, from, from England to perform, or, or from uh, – I brought a, a dancer from England. Yes. And more over. So I just did a big event there called Demon Pond, based on a Japanese fable. I did a show before that called Trangerella. Uh, you can see all that on my Facebook page. Uh, Trangerella about Cinderella story, but with a with a tranny. <laughs> and uh, uh, I've staged a whole bunch of. We did another one called Keeping the Tigers Away about uh, Sufi stories, about six Sufi stories, and they've all been really well received and well attended by the New York literati and the Bohemian. Uh, bohemian uh, section in New York. They're always really well attended, a couple hundred people. But I haven't been able to go. I have two shows in the wings to stage there. I just don't know. If I have a hard time getting seven feet into my kitchen from my bed, I certainly would have a hard time going to New York. Yes. Right? So right now, everything is just kind of on hold. I've also brought my attendant the last three times, 2017, 18, and 19, to New York with me. But right now, I can't imagine going, and things were closed for so long because of COVID, and now things are slowly opening again. My archive just did at Lincoln Center, and they promised a 
pick my stuff up in July. It's been sitting there in storage facility. So, but I just can't imagine at this point going back. Yes. And the only the only months I love to go to New York because of the weather are April and October. Uh, and you know, I wish I had a fabulous time when I go, but it doesn't look like I'm going to make it this October either. It's tricky, isn't it? It's just yeah, yeah. you know the mobility mm -hmm. issue is um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. just too just too much. It's just too much, <coughs> yeah. isn't it? But um, yeah. I mean, just coming back, I mean, were there you know when you sort of look at it various decades? I mean, was there particular high points or particular low points that you think, God, that was that was a tricky one? I just because often I've done quite a lot of these interviews and people, you know, if they get one decade really well the following decade yeah. can be quite tricky. What was your kind of 80s period like? You know, what was the... Oh, okay. Uh, the late 70s, 80s, and even into the uh, mid-90s, um, I was involved... I had, a, I had a nuclear family, and it's a kind of a, a, a tricky story, but I had a, a nuclear family... Um, uh, uh, that I was involved with in San Francisco. I was living in San Francisco then. And uh, I fell in love with a young man who was a uh, hairdresser. And both of us at the time were being, I would say, I had just come back from New York in 76, 77. And I, was, I would like to say that both of us were, were being kept. Uh, people, an older man, older gentleman was taking care of me. Uh, who was related to a uh, Prince Radziwill, of Lee Radziwill, Jackie Kennedy's uh, sister, and uh, an, an older man uh, was kind of taking care of me and provided me uh, a home in his ugly condo on Nobile, blah blah blah. Anyway, I had a I, on a blind date. I I had a I fell in love with a young man who was younger than me. Of course, I I have a penchant for younger men, and um, uh, we were together for. Uh, two years and he became a junkie and mm. I did not approve of that. So we broke up and then I turned to his, this is all during the period you're talking about. And then I turned to his, his little brother, the first boy was called, I turned to his little brother and we became involved and I was with him for five years until he became born again. Uh, yeah, they were Catholic boys for the mission, and uh, with uh, the second brother, I tell the story in the in the no, in the non-censored urinations, and, and as a um, uh, what do you call it uh, recreation. But um, uh, I became involved with his brother, the second brother, and I was with him for five years until he became born again, like a Jesus freak. Mm. And he ended up working in a dildo factory. This brother, and then we broke up when I. I fell in love with his little brother. <laughs> Never at the same time with his little brother, who was the most homophobic of all of them, because the, the third brother had seen me with his first brother and with his second brother. Uh, I spent the night at their house. Their mother was my assistant in my housekeeping business. Uh, she was my assistant, their mother. And they were pretty cool. They were, they were, Mexican. They were all born in San Francisco. They were all Latin uh, Catholics. And um, their father was really, really cool. Their father had a warped sense of humor. Uh, he's long gone now, but 
Celestino, the father, used to tell his four sons, if there were no women around, it was okay to go with a sheep. <laughs> and if there were no sheep around, it was okay to go with another guy in that order. Oh, right. <laughs> so when I heard that, I went out and had a sheep, sheep costume made. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I never had to use it. I lent it to a kinky friend. He brought it back to me soiled, and I said, Tim, you keep it. So, uh, <laughs> anyhow, so now I'm with the third brother, who's the most homophobic of all of them. He went to a high school here in San Francisco where he majored in fag bashing and rolling marijuana, I like to say. But he saw me with his two other older brothers. He, I spent the night over there. They, uh, the mom was cool with me, spent the, them spending the night at my house, even when they were and still in high school, they were pretty cool with it. As long as I, I said, you call Vicky and you tell her where you are so she doesn't know, think you're in a ditch. If you're not coming home, you let her know. And we had that agreement. Uh, so we were, it was really good. So finally, I'm with the third brother for 17 years until he got married and had a kid and named his first kid as my godson. And his wife and I really hit it off. She knew all about us his Filipino wife. I love her to pieces and they're friends to this day. There was a fourth brother, right? a young, an even younger one. And uh, I never, I had one date with him, but nothing really, nothing really. Uh, no, yes. we really weren't involved. A uh, fourth of the youngest brother, but I was with those brothers for 22 years and that was my family. So that's what I was doing. I was, that's what I was doing. I was giving them jobs and restaurants. They're all dyslexic to different degrees because, their mom, my my assistant, Victoria, she was so dyslexic, she couldn't even write her name. She'd do an X or a Zorro, a Z. She couldn't even write her name. Even we get, we try to get her special help at Project Read at the library. She could not do it, poor thing. So all her children had it to a degree, but dyslexia. And I had to help them do their driver's license orally, do their cosmetology license, help them as any way I could. Uh, but... Uh, I was with those that family for all those years. So that's where I was mm. uh, during AIDS. And because during the whole AIDS epidemic, and because of that, even though I was just down the street from Harvey Milk and the Dan White killings and all that, I was just down the street on folks. I wasn't involved in that or the AIDS epidemic or any of that. I was with three for 22 years. I was with three straight men who preferred women. Wow. And no, one woman at a time. So neither, they weren't sleeping with any other guys, and we did not have that kind of sex you have to, where you would get AIDS. And I did not ever do hard drugs. So that's what saved me from AIDS. Um, most of my friends, my gay friends from that time, were attending funerals for AIDS patients like every week. I knew one guy who, who was a fellow I, I worked with in the restaurant business who passed away of AIDS. Only one person. And because I was not... Not in that scene. I was I was there in San Francisco, but I wasn't participating in all the indiscriminate sex back then, or the bathhouses, or all that crazy stuff, or bad drugs that that you could get AIDS from, or anal sex. I abstained from all of that, and that's what saved me. Yes, God, that's extraordinary, isn't it? That is just amazing. And did you? I mean, with the you know the, with the coquettes period. I mean, because it's become so famous after fifty years. I mean, does that does that sort of do you have a sort of love hate relationship with the coquette? I do, I do, I, I do in a way. I usually I get I got a, I get a lot of offers uh, all the time of talking to this one or that one or fans. I 
I get a lot of uh, Facebook requests for this or that or the other thing or or, or uh, online blogs or this or that. And I kind of have to really choose and pick who I really <clears throat> who I really want to work with or talk to. And I do kind of get I am kind of a bit jaded when the books come out and the magazines come out. I tell my attendant we were just telling, telling somebody last night about it. I usually tell my attendant, throw it with the others. <laughs> magazine or book comes out. I'm kind of jaded about it. As, as I have uh, a big book's coming out uh, next month called Legends of Drag, and it's 81 queens. It's not a coquette. It's 81. That's not the only coquette in it. It's 81 queens of the elder persuasion in the book that a New York photographer has filmed very lovingly uh, <clears throat> here on my front porch. And he works, he's a New York photographer, but he's been published in Rolling Stone Italia in Harper's Bazaar, in Vogue. And he works with a, uh, a uh, florist from San Francisco. So it's always outside portraiture surrounded by flowers. And he did a beautiful, beautiful spread and shot and essay that's coming out in this book, uh, Legends of Drag. You could Google it. It's a gorgeous book. Yes. And it's 81 of us. And they're doing a big event. They're doing a big event at the Oasis, which is a gay nightclub in San Francisco. Uh, during Pride on June 22nd, but it looks like I'll be boycotting that too yes. for a personal reason uh, because it's a lot of lip sync. It's like 19 lip syncers on the stage, and I don't really. Cockass never lip synced. I tried it in cabaret in New York a couple of times, but it's really hard to do. And I just, I don't really get want to get on stage with like 19 lip syncers. Right. That would be that would be rather. And what happened to people like Cindy, you know, Cindy that you began your life with? Did you sort of keep one minute? My my meals are here. One minute, David. Okay. Is that you, Alex? Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'm doing okay. Milk's still good. Thanks for all the milks. Thanks. Hey, thank you, David. That was my meals on wheels. Nice. Yes. It's yeah, Howard, my driver just dropped off my meals on wheels and. What happened to who? Did you say Cindy, Cindy Williams? Yeah, Cindy Williams. She's fine. She's on tour right now in a show called Me, Myself, and Shirley because she played uh, Shirley on the Vernon Shirley, the sitcom, for so well. And she's decided to go on tour, but COVID's putting it's really hard for her for, for the tour, too. They've, they've had to cancel a couple of the engagements. She's touring across the country. Uh, but it's not the best time to be touring. Anyway, uh, getting on a plane, going from here to here to there. But she's fine. We're still friends. Uh, uh, we've been friends since junior high school, since we were just 15 or 14 years old. And uh, she's been kind of a patron of mine over the years. Uh, um, she's still around, still kicking. She just recently moved from Palm Springs to uh, Las Vegas. She lives in Las Vegas now. Oh, but, um, classy. That's yeah, a yeah. nice thing. And what about mm -hmm. Tina? What about Tina? Did you sort of, after the, you know, you were working with her in the early 70s, did you sort of yeah. keep in touch with her at all? Or did you part I with... did for a while. Uh, I got to do a, I got to do her dress for Carnegie Hall uh, that she presented. It was half done. She bought a, a dress in Paris that was basically just a little chain link, thousands of them, uh, the bodice. And she asked me to embellish it for her for Carnegie Hall. We did, and um, by the time she did Carnegie Hall, uh, and she did not wear the dress, and she, uh, the live, double live, double album came out with another dress, somebody else's, somebody else's dress on her on the album cover. I've since found a one photo of the dress in a rock magazine 
a cream or crawdaddy, one of those old rock magazines of her wearing it. Yes. And then we did another series of four rag dresses for her that I wore as Tina before she did that she liked. We did four and she eventually modeled those in Harper's Bazaar. <laughs> and uh, we, so she bought those. But uh, what had happened was um, um, she was still with Ike back then. Ike had all the money. Tina did not own one dime. So he everything had to go through him. And sometimes he well, she bought, we did a lot of neckwear for her and beads for her. A lot of neckwear. You could see a lot of it on my, on my Facebook page. A lot of, I'm wearing it. And we sold them a lot of neckwear and he paid for everything. But sometimes he paid in a, he'd pay us in a bag of Coke backstage at the little club they played at called Basin Street West. So for, I got to work with her for about a year and a half back then and impersonate her. She kind of took me under her wing because she said that, um, Anne Margaret turned her on to Buddhism, and Anne Margaret told her, if someone impersonates you, it's the highest form of flattery. <laughs> so unlike many of the lip syncers who lip sync, I, of course, did her live, so she loved that. She never got to see me doing her, although I did her about eight, seven times, and um, I never got, I, I saw her, of course, uh, many, many nights uh, watching her and <laughs> learning from her and hanging out with her in the dressing room, but... Uh, what happened, unfortunately, was um, I was about to do a, um, a benefit, a live benefit for my film Elevator Girls in Bondage in 1971. And uh, we were going to do a party, and I was going to do Tina Turner for the final time. And I had a dress made by the same people I was working with, the jewelers I was working with all along with the Tina Turner stuff. I had a dress made copy from an old uh, 40s or. 30s Follies dress from the Ziegfeld Follies. Oh, beautiful, yes. beautiful dress made of uh, fake pearls and rhinestones and all nude on the side. Very Tina Turner, but made and fitted for me to wear as her. We weren't the same size. Tina's a little bitty thing without her hair and, out her, and in flat, she's a little teeny thing. She comes up to my chin. But uh, uh, So I had this dress made for me as Tina for this benefit show for the Elevator Girls. And then just before the premiere... I had a big uh, episode with the director and the producer of that film because they were going to have the premiere in San Francisco and Bobby and Johnny from the Cockettes, the two young boys in the Cockettes who I featured in the film, weren't allowed in because they were minors. And the, the, the film, the theater owner, Arlene Elster, she was a, a dear friend of Janis Joplin, got, had been in trouble twice before for letting minors in this porno theater. She owned a, a erotic porno theater in San Francisco where Elevator Girls was the premiere. So they weren't allowed in. And they had both parts. I casted them in two of the leads in the film. And so I said, if they're not allowed in, I'm not going to the premiere. And neither are they. So what we did was my roommate, crazy roommate, Jeanette, who was in Elevator Girls, stole my dress out of my closet, the Tina Turner dress, brought it to L.A., and and said uh, left it with two designers in L.A. and said you need to go to a sound studio in San Francisco now and dub your voice. Now I have the lead in this movie and all the lines and no script. The script was in the director's head. I said, what are you talking about? I don't even have a script here. I you, I did my lines as we were doing it. Well, the sound didn't come out and we need to redo the whole soundtrack. Uh, Michael knows what to, what you're going to say. So I was so busy at the time with another film called Pickup Strips I was working on with Ginsburg. 
And uh, I said, I don't. I can't have time. And then I have another band. And I said, I don't. So finally, they said, unless you come to your senses and dub your voice, we're going to sell the dress to Tina Turner or Liza Minnelli. And I said, fuck that shit. I was so upset. I went crazy. I called Tina Turner. Luckily, she was at her mom's in Texas. She wasn't home. And I told her secretary, if they come with this dress, don't buy it. One, it won't fit her. And two, it's stolen goods. And I never heard from Tina again after that. I think she got scared. I think, and then years later, Michael Kalman, the director of Elevator Girls, came up to the premiere of the Cockettes, because he did it, of the Cockette documentary. And we got together and talked, and we talked about that incident way back in the 70s. And he said, you really thought I called, was going to sell it to Tina, didn't you? And I said, I did. And he said, of course, I never called her. I never called her. He just made it up for me to try to dub my voice. So I did not dub my voice. Pristine Condition dubbed my voice in the film. And he has a Texas twang. He's from Austin, Texas. He, I was delighted with his own, with him doing my voice. It's better than some of the, most of the actors were doing their own voice, dubbing their own voices. Uh, did, he did a really good job. We became friends in the mid-70s with Pristine. And um, I believe I finally got the dress back, but I would not, uh, in order for me to uh, sign the release, that's what it I had to sign the release. It came down to, I was the only one that would sign the release. I said, well, I'm not going to the premiere, but here's what we're going to do. You give me the dress back. I sign the release. Me, Bobby, and Johnny don't attend the premiere. I mean, Sylvester was there. Divine was at the premiere. Everyone was there. We don't attend the premiere. We actually hung out across the street from the theater in San Francisco. And after they all let out, Arlene, the theater owner, the producer, myself, the director, and the two boys, went in and had a private screening. I signed the release. I got the dress back. Amazing. <laughs> God, that's, that's such a busy... God, your life, you did have a lot of... A, <laughs> there's a lot of moments like that, probably, weren't Oh, there? I know. I could go on. Blah, blah. I could go on. I could go on. <laughs> we could do parts two, three, and four. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Did you ever sort of come across people like Tony Sonetta and, you know, and Tony DeFries? Of course, I just... I just... I just... I've worked with Tony just recently. In 2019, we became just fast friends. I just finally met him because uh, Tony Veneta is a dear friend of my friend, Augusto Machado. Uh, from uh, He goes back to John Vaccaro and Andy Warhol, Augusto Machado. And they're best friends. And uh, Augusto brought Tony into the fold just in 2019, attended all my events. He's an absolute sweetheart. Yep. Yes, I know. It's amazing. Well, I just wondered if you were part of that. Was it Main Man kind of management which Tony DeFries set yeah, up for, right. for David yeah, Bowie. I, I didn't know Tony DeFries, but I knew Tony Zanetta, and of course I knew uh, Wayne Jane County. I, we used to cruise Christopher Street in New York together in, in cabs and pick up boys way back in the, the days. Amazing. Yes, dear old Jane, and just bought a book out as well. So with your, yeah. you know, what, what was your, you know, just roughly, I mean, what was it like the San, being from, you know, living in San Francisco to sort of then being in New York, was, they, was that quite a big cultural shift for you? Oh, not really. After three or four years in New York, I kind of did the whole New York scene for three years. I, like I said, I, I worked with Ibiscus. I worked with the performance artist, Marta Mood. I ended up living in um, Manhattan originally. Uh, I only went to New York when I was up in Montreal, and I, I knew Hibiscus and Coquette Aaron, who was an early Coquette, were both already in New York. But I had to be invited by one of them just to know I, I had a roof over my head. So it was, it was Aaron who finally invited me. 
saying he lived in the in the village. So he finally invited me after nine months in Montreal. I went to New York to stay with him. Uh, we were once lovers way back in the Coquettes, but um, uh, he was now had a new boyfriend, and the boyfriend got very jealous. They were not in the Greenwich Village at all. They were in a very dodgy neighborhood uh, called Alphabet City in a, a bad neighborhood, and I lasted like three days. So I immediately <clears throat> took what money I had left, and I moved to the Chelsea Hotel. And boy, that's another whole <laughs> event. If walls could talk at that place, at the, you never know what you're going to see at the Chelsea Hotel or who you're going to run into there. Yes. Uh, Patty Smith lived next door at the time in the other building, but not in the Chelsea. She eventually moved to the Chelsea, but after I lived there. And I stayed there. First, it was very cheap at first, it was, but it was a, a room with just a sink and a community bathtub, bathroom down the hall for $79 a week. And then eventually um, I got a, uh, I got a one bedroom with four of us, two Two friends came from Rome, Peter and uh, Jay, and we moved in with a uh, filmmaker called Sandy Daly, who had been living there. She made a, a short film, Robert Has His Nipple Pierced, about Robert Naplesler. So we we lived there for a while. So after the Chelsea Hotel, I uh, where did I go? I, I started living uh, in, all over the, the Lower East Side. That was my neighborhood, the Lower East Side. And uh, I lived with... Tomato Duplenty, who was in San Francisco at the time, he was another old lover of mine. And uh, I mean, he was in New York at the time. And he was, uh, uh, this was before he was uh, uh, lead singer of the Screamers. So he was in New York at the time. And I lived with him for a while, lived all over the Lower East Side. My other roommate was uh, Camille O'Grady. I don't know if you know who she is. Mm -hmm. Camille O'Grady. So I lived all over the Lower East Side for a while. Then eventually, I, when I was working with Hibiscus at the Angels show, my guitar player, his wife, was dealing weed out of a, their place in Brooklyn, uh, and I moved in with her. She threw him out, my guitar player. I moved in with her and her daughter in Brooklyn, in Eastern Parkway, and ended up in Brooklyn for the next six months. Then all of us went up to uh, upstate New York to the Catskills, where she became a counselor with another woman, at a camp called a hippie interracial camp called Camp Abelard with their kids, and they became counselors. And I moved up there to the next town, Hunter Mountain, uh, Tannersville, with hibiscus uh, to a uh, to a big twenty two room former ski lodge in Tannersville in the next town. We got a really good price for the whole summer for two grand, two thousand dollars for three months. And I moved up there, and Tannersville, that house up in the country, was kind of a a uh, a workshop for a, uh, a tour that the angels were going to go on to a Provincetown and Key West, Florida. But I bowed out of that show as well. I bowed out of that and decided not to go to police on the house. Uh, and by the end of the summer, uh, I decided to stay up in the country and worked as a dishwasher, uh, worked where a house sat, a dog sat, anywhere I could stay up there. Eventually, uh, the lady Ilka, I'd lived in Brooklyn with her a kid, and other lady, uh, we all got a big house up there in Lanesville. And I lived up there for the next year and a half. So I was two years up in the Catskill when it finally got so cold and boring. Uh, I like to say the biggest events of the day where you get up and wash your hair and then you go down the road and see the new cow. <laughs> that was it. Not much, not much culture or nothing. So finally I said, you know, I'm, 
I've got to go back to California. And that was when I came back in 75, so late 75, 76. But it took me four months to get across the country. God. It took me four months. I stopped in New Orleans for four months in 74. Amazing. And there, I, I, I was running out of money. I had no money. I didn't know how I was going to get back from you know, halfway to California, but I was really running out of money. I didn't know where, I didn't know where I was going to stay when I got to California. I just thank God for the, the man who picked me up and kept me for a year and a half there in the condo. Because I, by the New Orleans, uh, I had to resort to some kind of shady stuff to, just to get by. It was very cheap back then. Let me tell you, they, uh, you know, a plate of beans and rice was forty-nine cents, and if you added a, if you added a meat, a ham hock or something, it was like a dollar ten to eat and feed yourself. But it was kind of rough going, and I had to do some um, kind of illegal things to just get by, get out of there in New Orleans. Yes. Uh, one of the one of the stories I like to tell. I don't know. Let me catch my breath here for a minute. Uh, I will tell you this. It's, you can take it for what it's worth. I've told it before, but um, in New Orleans, those four months, I felt a little preoccupied with death because of two situations, prior situations, just before I left after four months. And in late May, I got there New Year's Eve, 75, uh, and in late May, uh, it got so unbearably hot there that I said, I'm not going to survive this. And I had been already kind of preoccupied with death two different, not my death, but somebody else's death, uh, that in the last two weeks I was there. So I decided to get out of there. And the motive, the only way I could get out of there was hitchhiking. So I stuck my thumb out in New Orleans. And the first person that picked me up in 75, uh, uh, I got into his car. It was a big, big, like Cadillac DeVille, Coupe DeVille or something. very overweight man dressed in a, looked like a starskin suit by himself, picked me up rings on every finger. We started chatting. And next thing I know, we're talking about people we both knew from the groupie scene in LA. Next thing I know, he says, yeah, I just wrote a book. It's in the back seat in the box. Take, take, check it out. I reached back, grabbed the book and I don't know the exact title. I donated it, but it was something about the bank of New Orleans and the author was Jim Morrison. It was two years after his alleged death. He picked me up hitchhiking. Huh? So, <laughs> so I know. But uh, check out the book. It's it's called The Bank of New Orleans by Jim Morrison. It's two or three years after his alleged death, and I ha- I bought the book, uh, and I donated it to Lincoln Center. And it is it, if you read his biographies. Uh, no one gets out of here alive, and the other ones. They all say alleged deaths. So I believe he is not in Perlichet. I don't believe he's there. I believe he probably is dead by now, but I wasn't the only one. When I got back to San Francisco immediately, uh, I went to my friends who would like to rock archivists to tell the story. And I, they were rock archivists for both Bowie and Iggy. They had fan clubs for both of them. And I mentioned to them, uh, to David, uh, not David Bowie, but to David Rockhart, about my alleged encounter with Jim Morrison. And uh, he said, just a minute. He walked in the back room, came back out with that book. Is this the book you're talking about? I said, yeah. I did not take the book. I put it back on the box. I've since bought the book and donated it. It's very, it's hard to find, and it's very 
collector's item. But it is it it is totally by Jim Morris. I believe that he staged his own death. I don't know what's become of him since, because he was such a liar. He said his parents were both dead. Of course, his parents are still alive, fighting over the money with the doors and his wife's money, his wife's family. They're all still fighting over that to this day. It's never been settled. Mm. But I believe, I really believe that Morrison State, and he is the same man that I saw in the Living Theater, worked with in the Living Theater back in 69. But we're talking five years later. We're talking 74, 75. So you check out that book. It's the Bank of New Orleans, or Bank of Louisiana, excuse me, Bank of Louisiana, James Morrison, Jim Morrison. You'll see the book. And, and it's well worth a read. It's rather weird. And a lot of people think I'm nuts, but I'm not the only one. The, once I got back to San Francisco, I heard of multiple sightings of this guy, but I heard, I heard also it was someone impersonating him. But I'd like to take, I don't know, I'd like to take that secret to the, the grave with me, just like um, the controversy of the picture of hibiscus putting the flowers in the guns of the, yes. of the soldiers, you know that famous thing? To this day, uh, I don't want to publish that photo anymore because I'm friends with Hibiscus's family. I was dear friends with his mom who's passed away, but his sisters still come to all my shows in New York and I'm friends with them. Mary, Mary Lou is in my movie, Illuminations. So uh, uh, to this day, there's another fellow who they claim is not Hibiscus and it's him called Super Joel. And I knew Super Joel too. Both were my lovers. But Super Joel was my lover. He's the one that opened that gallery, Art for Art's sake, the Lockbrick. Hibiscus never did say that that was him. His family think it is him. He's wearing a sweater that looks almost like the sweater his younger brother Walter has on. The mm. same sweater. It, it's uncanny. But then Super Joel was telling everybody it was him before he's died. They're both dead. And Super Joel's family is Chicago Mafia. So I never wanted to irk them by saying, every time I would put that up, his sister, the Tornabeni family in Chicago would say, no, that's my brother, Super Joel. That's not Hibiscus. I just stopped because it was so, I didn't want the Mafia after me. And the Leary family, Timothy Leary's son, who was very close with Super Joel, always would insist that that was not Hibiscus. It was Super Joel. So I kind of, I'm the only one that really knows. Uh, I was, both of them were my lover at one point. I kind of, I kind of, I'm taking the secret to the grave. David Wiseman, who directed the Coquette documentary, has been after me for years. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? They've offered me money. They, people have said, oh, you must tell. Please, please, which one is it? I don't want to, I don't want to uh, have the mafia family after me for one, or the Leary family. And I certainly don't want to burst the bubble of Hibiscus's family, thinking it's him. So I've decided to take the secret to the grave with me. <laughs> but I do offer this clue. I do offer this one clue that the answer will astonish all. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, how interesting. The answer will astonish everybody. That's all I'm going to say about that photo. But I won't put it up anymore because every time I do, I get black from it. So I take it down, delete it. <laughs> <laughs> God, you've got so many stories. It's just, it's kind of, oh, a, no. it, it's amazing. How was your how, uh, you just interviewed Lenny, Lenny K, right? Yes, that's right. He was just doing a book. 
Oh, it was brilliant. He was really yeah. lovely. Oh. And, I haven't um, seen him in years. No, oh, he, he, was, he was a darling. And um, yes, I've done, you know, I have... I've been kind of lucky with a lot of the people because they've, you know, like I, I've, you know, last week I just did an interview with Tony DeFries from, you know, David Bowie's. Yeah, I saw that. I read that. Yeah, I, read, I listened to that. Ex-manager. And, and I have done one with dear old um, Tony Sonetta as well, who was delightful. Yeah. So um, cool. there are there are a lot on there, which I've, I've managed to capture, which has just been cool. extraordinary. But this has been fantastic. I mean, just lastly, I mean, if it was something you could have just said to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you'd have just kind of whispered in their ear, you know, just a few, you know, a key, a key message or a bit of wisdom that you have learned over the over the decades? Well, I like to say, uh, uh, never, I'd like to say to keep myself, keep my, uh, I don't know, I just like to say, in no way, I never know what's around the corner for me. Uh, so, you know, I'm not one to ever get bored. I have a lot of, I have a lot of English boy, boy Facebook friends who are always telling me, they're bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. I, you know what I say to them? Uh, I say, how could you possibly be bored? You have a, you have a hand, don't you? But I'm not meaning... <laughs> I'm not meaning anything sexually. Maybe I am a little tongue in cheek about it, but I'm basically telling them, be creative. You're a creative person. You went to Fashion Institute. You went here in Leeds, whatever. Draw a picture, paint a painting, write a book, write a poem, do something creative. How could you possibly be bored? I've never, ever been bored. And I feel I've really been gifted uh, just by growing up in the middle of middle of all this and having, having to be in the, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's about a matter of being in the right place at the right time. It's just, my trajectory where where it's taken me, the opportunities I have. But I've also given many, many people opportunities they may not otherwise have had. I have casted and put people, hundreds, probably thousands of people in events and shows and given people opportunities they may not otherwise ever have had. And that which gets me off more than stuff that's happened to me. I've had my ups, I've had my downs, I have a a young muse now who's just 31 years old. I've been, I've been dear friends with him for 12 years now when he first came from Russia. And uh, he is, uh, you know, he talks about how we've had good shows and bad shows. He's been my muse and he's been in my shows. And he points out, you know, some of the shows we've done that were just, just tanked, weren't so good. But then other opportunities to, you know, to have my things in Lincoln Center and to have, you know, to be celebrated as a, a queer elder and, all those opportunities I've had. And I like to say I like to leave a legacy and show others how to do so. Many people, creative people, lose their legacy or don't make arrangements. And that's why I deal with other people's archives right now. I am constantly collecting and saving other people's archives and or telling them where to put it, where to put their own collection. Not necessarily in my archive, but... but uh, how to do so themselves because uh, unless our stories are saved, it would be like if we never existed. That's yes. how I feel. Uh, so it's very important that we leave something for future generations to look at. I gave an event in 2019 in New York City uh, and invited 40 friends to this little bookstore in the Gay Center to uh, uh, tell people about my collection at Lincoln Center and at the Performing Arts Library and inviting people up to go look and all you need to do is uh, call uh, 24 hours ahead of time. They'll, they'll bring everything over from Long Island. They'll give you a conference room and gloves. And you could go through just pounds and pounds of, of, of uh, memorabilia. Uh, you know, everything from scene charts 
to punk bands I've shown to uh, photographs and flyers. My whole career is there. And uh, uh, how easy it is. Well, not one friend went, ended up actually going up there and making the effort to look at my collection. But you know who is looking at my collection? Academics, professors, producers, people like that. And these are the people that I really want to reach out to. Yes. I really want. So that's the people that are actually going into my archive and looking. If they want to do know more about Robert Opal, the streaker at the Oscar, they can go and find what I have of them or, or that. So that's the people, the teachers and professors. And, and then I have an NYU professor, uh, Joe Jeffries. He's a drag historian in New York City who's literally videotaped everything I've done in New York since 2008 or nine. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, so he's collected everything on, on video. So I've made that record. I'm so glad I have that, that will outlive me. But other people, I've, there's just horror stories about some artists who they'll end up. Uh, I just saved a collection that had we not saved it, uh, my friend Vincent Costa, 50 years of art. His family, all the family wanted was uh, his laptop and his wallet and a scrap family scrapbook. They didn't care about any of his art, didn't even know about it. His fetish art and gay stuff. I just saved all that from the owner of the building throwing it in the dumpster. And sometimes you can't save it. I had another another situation last year where the fellow had died, photographer from back in the 70s, wonderful work, and the brother insisted it be burnt, destroyed. Mm. I tried my best to save it. I was working with a city council man back in Minnesota where it was. Couldn't do it. The brother burned the stuff. Yes. That's an... so I think it's really important. I, I try to preach to young people how they should leave a legacy. But the young people think they're immortal. You know? The last thing they, they think of doing is saving something. I know. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, you, one thing you mentioned at the beginning was kind of your love of music. I mean, if you were just curious, if you were going to sort of, say, pick your five most enjoyable or influential records in your life, what would they be? Ah. Uh, right off the bat, it's just off the top of my head here. I would go with uh, the airplanes after bathing at Baxter's. Not serialistic pillow, but after bathing at Baxter's. I would go uh, with the original Floyd album, the one with uh, Set Your Controls to the oh, yes. uh, the first one. I'd go with, um, oh, what else? Uh, what else? Uh <clears throat> Oh, my God. Uh, just trying to think here. It's a hard one. Uh, I'm not sure. Probably a, uh, Cream's first album. I've never really liked them since. Uh, yes. With uh, the first album. I forget what it's called. Uh, uh, what else? Mm. I don't know. Because I, I, I like a lot of, a lot of artists. And I like a lot of one-hit wonders yes. and a lot of singers, but I don't know, really know the name of the artist. I don't know the name of the album. I love uh, Kimmy Euro, uh, the music of her. Have you ever heard of her? Mm. Kimmy Euro. Mm. She had uh, some, some early 60s, early, late 50s singles, The Big Hurt and uh, What's the Matter, Baby, Is It Hurting You? Kimmy Euro. She played Vegas a lot. She's dead now. So I lost, I, uh, they weren't really LPs. Oh, of course, the, uh, the Stones, I would probably like Flowers of the Stones, that album. Yes. I never really, I saw the Stones live at Hollywood Bowl. 
I never really liked the Beatles so much as the Stones, because of course the Stones were the bad boys and the Beatles were the good boys. And the Beatles had great songs, but uh, I'm not saying they didn't. But um, uh, uh, I can't really, you know, I, I like, but I, I loved a lot of the Stones' work and Satanic Majesty's request another great album. Yes, definitely. I also love the L.A. group Love. You know them? Love, oh, God, L-O-D-D. yes. Well, it's funny. I've yeah. met, I did an interview with um, a guitar player who's, who was in the, I suppose, the, the Love band that got yeah, together in about 2006, 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. he's now currently touring as, you know, Arthur Lee's Love, even though yeah. Arthur's not with us yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, and they're going to be in the UK very soon. So uh, Arthur Lee's dead. Yes, he's very dead, I'm afraid. But, uh, but, and then Alvin Lee, I loved Alvin Lee 10 years, ten years after, too. I liked Alvin Lee. I saw him a lot perform. But I liked a lot of the performers more so than Alvin. I never really collected vinyl. Uh, the only two vinyls I remember having in college were, I did the singles. But vinyl, uh, the only two I had collected were uh, uh, Joan Baez, Kumbaya, so one of her first albums. And then the theme, the soundtrack from the Broadway show, Oliver. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and I have a pension for for English stuff to English actors to this day. Uh, I just watched a wonderful series from uh, 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 English series, but what was from called uh, the Durells of Cor- in Corfu. Uh, I watch a lot of English television. Oh, nice. I just have a I just have a pension for for English t- television and BBC. They do some incredible work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, excellent. Well, that's fantastic. Well, look, James, thank you ever so yeah. much. This has been amazing. Call me Rumi. Call me Rumi. I will call you Rumi. Sorry. James is so formal. Yeah. Yes. James is so formal. Rumi. Thank James, you. I, do, I just use James legally. But yes. But no, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And um, yeah. I just really appreciate it. And it's been incredibly insightful. Pleasure. And uh, and and so honest. At, um, yes, it's been fantastic. So, I'm glad cool. we got this together, and I'm pleased. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can use I'd it. I'd love to hear that. Maybe you want to edit out, uh, like I said, that little snarky business with they had. I, I just, I, I just hate to hate for her to, to hear it. I don't really have nothing to do with her, but uh, yes. she could very well hear. We just don't quite see eye to eye anymore. No. She's just stood me up, and so many times I really don't want to do that. Maybe you could somehow get Yeah, that, that, like, no, I've got, I've got, yes, I know it was about 29 minutes, so I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll yeah. cut that out. But but that's been amazing. But thank you ever so much. Look, you must go and have your lunch now because that's going to. Yeah, you'll put that on, you're going to put it on Facebook soon? Yeah, I'll put it on very, yes, I'll do it very soon. And I'll be able to share it with my patron. Can I share it with my patron? Oh, God, my yes, page? anybody you like. That would be absolutely fine. And um, oh, that would be. Share it on my page. Share it with my patron said, oh, I'd love to hear it. So. I promised I'd share it with him when he came out. Fantastic. Look, okay. I'll do that. I'll yeah. do that very soon. But look, have a lovely okay. lunch. And um, yes, Thank take you. care. And um, okay. I'll keep in touch. Take care, Rumi. All Thanks right. a lot. All right. Bye-bye, David. It's been fun. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in, t- um, in conversation with Rumi from The Cockettes and many more and other the- theatrical groups. Anyway... That's the end of the interview, just in case you didn't really realise. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David East, so if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, and there are other 
interviews with members of the Coquettes, so do check them out. Um, but a massive thank you to Rumi for giving me the time for that. Much appreciated. Um, just have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>